secret thing, but anyone who didn't, the eldest uh, member of their family was killed, as well as the eldest animal. And it was the kind of severe measures that the Lord had to um, resort to when Pharaoh just would not let his people go. After saying he would and changing his mind and jacking them around as much as he did, God finally got really serious about it. And, and they would always celebrate this Passover feast. So that made it tricky for religious leaders because they're at one of their greatest Christian, or sorry, not Christian, but godly holidays. And uh, not a good time to murder someone who's innocent. And besides that, Jesus had such a following that they were concerned that the people would just rebel against them if they did something. So they started secretly planting something, looking for an opportunity, but they were afraid of the people. And then it says Satan entered Judas. This is the only time we know where um, Satan himself is said to have gotten involved in a person. So like a possession, but Satan actually possessed Judas. It will happen again during the tribulation period when he does that with the Antichrist. But Satan entered him, and uh, he was one of the disciples. But he went his way and talked with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And the idea was, Judas said, I can find a time and place when there isn't a crowd. Not a lot of people around. Nobody's going to notice it, and you'll be able to snag him. We don't know why Judas had turned on Jesus at this point. Um, perhaps because he realized Jesus wasn't going to establish a kingdom right away and Judas couldn't understand why not. Um, it doesn't really say. We know that after he betrayed him, he felt terrible about it. Um, but So he came and talked to them and they were glad and they said they would give him money. And so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Now, it was the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. So the night before the Passover lamb would be killed, and Jesus told Peter and John, go get things ready. And they said, where do you want to do it? And he said, well, when you go into the city, a guy will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him to the house, and then say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he'll show you a large furnished upper room and get it ready there. So they went, it happened just like they said, and they were getting the meal ready for the Passover. We don't know exactly where that upper room is, but when you go to Israel, you, you see an upper room that's similar to that, and it's perhaps on the same uh, location because the traditions there go go way back about that location, but it's kind of like a, you know, a top floor open banquet hall. And in this case, the one that we go to when we go there is, is really close to the southern steps of the temple. And one of the reasons why we think that's probably the neighborhood, for one thing, this makes it clear that they entered the city and, and they'd find this guy and it was right there. And that's pretty close to the entrance, the east side of the city. Um, but also, it's probably the same upper room where uh, we'll see <coughs> next week as we start studying um, the book of Acts that the disciples were meeting in and 
as the Holy Spirit fell upon them, Peter went out and preached a sermon, got a lot of attention, and 3,000 people were saved. In Jerusalem, about the only place you could put an audience of 3,000 people together is on the southern steps of the temple, and it wasn't that unusual to, um, you know, for people to give orations there. The acoustics are great. I've taught there several times, and and interestingly, at the bottom of the southern steps to the temple are a whole bunch of, of ceremonial baptismal pools. And on the day of Pentecost, the, um, you know, those 3,000 people got baptized, so they had to get baptized somewhere. There are other places in the city that could have happened, but I think that is by far the most likely place. And, um, and the upper room that we go to is right near there, so... Jesus got together with them and he sat them down and he said in verse 15, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's the one who kind of laid this out as the last supper for a while and that's why we call it that. And he said, I've really been wanting to have this special time with you. Um, to make it clear to you what's going to happen and, and that this is something that's very important. And he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. The disciples were funny. But... You know, he, he, he broke the bread and he gave the cup and he said, hey, this is the token of the fact that I'm giving of myself. Now, um, the Catholic Church gets a bit confused here, I think, and it's not just the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church to a degree, even um, the Lutheran churches, some of them who believe in what's called consubstantiation or they believe that there's a physical presence of Jesus at the at the table um, the Catholics believe in what's called transubstantiation which they actually believe that when Jesus took the elements and when a priest gets the elements it becomes literally the body and blood of the Lord um, and I don't get I don't get too bugged at people for believing that because I don't mind anyone going too literal. I'm refreshed by that compared to people who aren't literal enough. And yet, when you look at, the, when you look at this passage, you realize Jesus was still in his body. His blood was still coursing through his veins. Not likely that they would make the mistake of thinking that somehow this cracker and this wine was actually his body and blood. So I think they would understand that he was speaking 
metaphorically, that's the way I look at it. Besides the fact that for a Jew to drink blood would have violated the law, would have been a sin for Jesus, and therefore he wouldn't be perfect and he couldn't forgive our sins, and there's no way the disciples would have drank blood um, if they believed it was actual blood. Um, and, and also notice after Jesus gives them the wine, he says, I'm not going to drink again of the fruit of the vine. He doesn't say of my blood. It's still, it's still wine. It's still, it's still grape juice. Um, and yet I understand how people get confused on that. And I really don't argue with them. I think the reasons I gave are pretty good ones for believing that this is metaphorical. Now, um, this was very important to Jesus. He was looking forward to it. This was important to the disciples. The church continued to celebrate communion regularly, even as we did last week. Um, and so sometimes I think what we call, you know, you, they call a real formal church the high church, a church that resorts heavily to um, formalized liturgy. Um, some of the uh, older denominations, as well as the Western Catholic Church, the Eastern Church, and so on, are high church. Um, we would tend to be more known as low church, meaning that we're very informal. And if there's a concern that I have about those of us in the low church, um, it's that, and I don't mean high or low in a derogatory way, those are just expressions that are used, but, but I think sometimes we can make too little of communion. Now, I don't believe that it magically turns into blood. However, I do believe that it's a big deal. And, and I just don't think we should be flippant about it. It was a big deal to Jesus. It should be a big deal to us. I, one time I was speaking at a retreat, and um, they said, hey, you know, on the way out, they said, there's some, there's some uh, crackers and juice out at the back door, so if you want to do communion, feel free to grab some on your way out. Um, I don't think that's quite what Jesus had in mind. Um, we, there are stories of people using potato chips and Coke for communion and things like that. Um, you know, God looks on the heart, so I'm not going to pick on people who would do that. But, but I do think that there has to be a balance between a superstitious view of communion and a um, haphazard kind of tacky view. I think we can find some place in between there where it's really meaningful. But Jesus called out. And actually, after this, the Gospel of John tells us that he told Judas, I know what you're going to do. Why don't you just go ahead and do it? Which kind of forced Judas's hand. He was probably thinking, ah, one of these days, I'll get a hold of these guys. But Jesus just said, do it now. It's fine. And uh, he was going to head out to the garden, and that's where they, they snagged him and where Judas betrayed him. But again, he said, he said it had to happen. It was fulfillment of prophecy, but he, he declared kind of a curse on the guy who would sell him out, uh, Judas. And so um, everybody was going, which of us is going to do it? You know, the guys are going, Peter, I bet it'll be you. And he's like, no way. And, you know, I don't know, Simon the Zealot, he's kind of, seems a little depressed lately and you know so they're talking back and forth about who would do it we know from john's gospel that you know they actually john was 
lying there right next to Jesus. And so the other disciples were motioning to him, you know, ask him. And, and Jesus actually tipped him off. He said, well, um, I am going to offer the, the cup with the bread dipped in it to somebody, and that's the guy. And so then he gave it to Judas. Interesting to me that Jesus served communion to Judas. Sometimes people make a big deal about, you know, oh, you need to make sure that you're right with God before you take communion. You need to know that you're, you know, in fellowship with him and you haven't done any sins, you haven't confessed and everything. But um, it's interesting to me that Jesus had no problem serving communion to Judas himself, knowing what he did. Jesus also washed Judas's feet, and I think there's a lesson to be learned about us not being too picky about who we minister to. Um, Jesus kind of let the judgment sort it out, and he just reached out and loved people and offered himself to people, and uh, so that's, I think, interesting. Now they were arguing at the same time about who's the greatest, as they started arguing about who's going who's gonna to sell Jesus out, then they started going, you know, and probably in response to that, hey, I'm not going to do it because I'm in the inner circle. I'm, I'm better than you guys. You guys might do that, but not me. And so Jesus knew what they were up to, and he said, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. This business of being over other people and bossing other people around. As we just saw this last Sunday, as we were in the fifth chapter of, of the book of First Peter, um, Peter learned the lesson well. He goes, no, this isn't about being a boss. Being a minister is about serving. It's not about having people do your beck and call. He said, he who is greatest among you, let him be the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He said, there's going to be a day when you get promoted, when you are blessed beyond your wildest dreams, but that day's not now. There's going to be a day when Jesus would say, I sit on my throne, but that day is not now. Today, I serve you. Tomorrow, I'll give my life for you. Your day will come, but it's not now. And this is just important for all of us to remember when we feel like we aren't appreciated or we feel like we're disrespected or judged and things like that. This isn't our day. This isn't our place. Our time will come. And so then the Lord said, Simon to Peter, Simon, Simon indeed, and probably Peter was the one who was trying to lay claim to being the greatest. He probably is the one who started the whole idea of him being the first pope. But uh, he said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Apparently, and this would line up with the book of Job, before Satan attacks a believer, 
Um, he asked to get permission, and I think that's interesting. And he said, Satan asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And by the way, he's praying for you too. Book of Hebrews says that Jesus forever lives to make intercession for us. He is at the right hand of the Father praying for you at this moment. But he said, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. Now you go, Jesus prayed that he wouldn't fall, but Peter fell on his face. He makes a fool of himself in just a, a little while. That's interesting. I, I'm not quite sure how to explain it, but I would say if Jesus prayed that Peter wouldn't fail, then Peter didn't fail. There's a point where Jesus will allow it to go, and yet ultimately, Peter still believed. His faith was still there. And though we may do really stupid things, and we may doubt, and we may feel like, I'm just losing my faith. I don't know if I can trust God through this trial or through this testing. I think Jesus probably feels a little better about you than you do. Because we feel like failures, because we expect so much of ourselves. Jesus, he knows us. He knows that we are dust. And so he's not shocked when we mess up. Satan's the one who really wants to condemn you when you mess up. Because if he can get you on the shelf, if he can get you to walk away from God with your head hanging down because you, you, know, you let him down, you know, then Satan wins. Truth is, you don't let him down. He knows what you're like, and he's praying for you. And when you stumble and when you fail, as he said to Peter, he said, there's a day when you're going to be there for somebody else. There's a day when you will strengthen others on the basis of your failure, on the basis of your sin, on the basis of you getting the pride kicked out of you. And so he said, when that happens, just remember, be there for others. But Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And I think he was sincere. Um, he wasn't ready to watch Jesus be tortured and not say or do anything. Um, but I think he was up for a fight. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. Now comparing, here it says he won't, the rooster will crow and you'll deny me three times. Some of the other gospels say that before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Um, I'm not sure what the best explanation of it is, but if that worries you, I'm worried for you. <laughs> you know, the, the, the point is the big one when Peter realized it was that second crowing, and so it was before he heard that that he realized, oh no, look what I've done. So Luke emphasizes the last crowing. The truth is there were all kinds of roosters that were crowing, but there were two that Peter noticed, and there was one that just broke his heart. So Jesus predicted that. Now he tells them, get ready, times are going to be different. He said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. Remember he sent them out 
in twos, and he told them, don't even take a wallet with you, don't take anything. You're going to rely on the people that you minister to, and they'll pay you, and they'll take care of you. And sure enough, it worked out. But then he said to them, but now, he who has a money bag, you better take it with you. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his extra coat and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, quoting from Isaiah 53, for the things concerning me have an end. So Jesus said, it's going to get tougher. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to soft pedal it at all. And now you're going to need to be prepared. You're going to need to have a backpack. You're going to need to have money. And having a sword would be a smart thing too. Um, this is an interesting passage of Scripture for people who don't believe that Christians should defend themselves. Uh, they went ahead and said, well, okay, look, we have two swords. And he said, yeah, that's fine. So I think proliferation of weapons is hard to defend maybe from Scripture, but um, certainly to be able to defend yourself is not something that the Bible would ever teach against. And Now, I'm not saying everybody needs to go out and buy a gun um, or a sword. Um, I'm just saying... If you feel led to do that, there are some good reasons to do that, to be able to defend yourself. And I don't see that the Bible teaches the kind of pacifism where you can't defend yourself, or even more importantly, you can't defend someone else. I think it's sad and kind of foolish when people refuse to defend themselves. And I've been confronted with people. I had a guy years ago who came into the office and he was really mad because his kid had gotten trouble for being in a fight. And his argument was his kid was just defending himself. And, but his kid was kind of a bully and um, you know, prided himself in that ability, and so he was disciplined. But his dad, who wasn't a Christian and he owned a gun store, came into the store and it came into the office and I happened to be the only one in the office and he said, uh, are you telling me that if I come across your desk right now and start beating the tar out of you that you're not gonna defend yourself? And I said, I don't know, why don't you try it? <laughs> he calmed down pretty quick when I stood up. But uh, <laughs> Jesus told him, now defend yourself. Again, don't now, guys, go tell your wife that I, I think you should buy an AK-47 and stockpile tons of ammo. But, and you should be really careful if you have kids in the home about how you keep weapons secured and things like that, all right? So there's the little safety thing, but at the same, and if you're a person that has anger problems, maybe you don't want that. If you're a person who has a drinking problem, you might want to think twice about it or keep it you know, under a combination lock that has five or six numbers. That way you'll never be able to open it if you're drunk or mad. But um, at the same time, he told them, times are going to get tough. You might want to arm yourself. So do with that what you want. Um, that's my little tribute to the NRA. Now, <laughs> now Jesus went out and went to the Mount of Olives. He hung out there a lot, the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was accustomed, and his disciples followed him, and he came to the place, uh, the place where he would typically sit, 
And there were several, there are several amazing places even now in the Garden of Gethsemane with these old trees that are just these olive trees that, that um, you know, twist around. And you, I've just had some of the most incredible prayer times there, partly because I'm thinking about Jesus praying there, but, but uh, it really is a pretty amazing place as you sit there on the hill and you can see the beautiful city of Jerusalem across the canyon and everything. But he came to the place he usually prayed. And it's good to have a place where you usually pray, wherever that is. And he told the disciples, pray that you don't enter into temptation. And he went about a stone's throw away and knelt down and prayed and said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We know from the other gospels that Jesus prayed this at least three times that we know of. He said, if there's any way out of this, I'd love to get out of this, but I will do what needs to be done. I'll do what you sent me to do. And an angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthened him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now when Jesus was stabbed with the sword later on the cross, blood and water came out. But here it's just sweat, but they, they say it's like drops of blood. It's just... It's, he, was, he was sweating and crying so intensely that drops were going down. He rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, and he found them sleeping from sorrow. Luke is the one who mentions sleeping from sorrow. I, I've never fallen asleep because of sorrow. I can more tend to stay awake because of sorrow, but, you know, they... This could have been the explanation that the disciples gave when Luke was interviewing them and said, how in the world could you go to sleep at a time like that? And, and this was historical revisionism, but probably not because the Holy Spirit inspired this to be written. And so um, it gives us an insight that they couldn't handle the pain. They couldn't handle seeing Jesus suffering the way he was. And, and it must have been real disconcerting. Jesus had always been strong. He had always been the one that they would lean on. He had it together. And seeing him hurting that way, just in some way, perhaps they even passed out from observing it. Um, that's my best guess anyway. But, you know, Jesus came back and said, man, you guys, why are you asleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. This would be a good time for you to pray. They went through this several times. But while he was speaking to them that time, a crowd started coming. And this wasn't a crowd to hear him speak. This was a crowd of soldiers and um, Jewish leaders. And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. A lot of people wonder, why did he have to kiss Jesus um, to identify him? These guys should have known who it was. But it was very dark. It was late at night. And... They probably, you know, they had seen him from a distance. Many of them had heard him, but, but Judas just wanted to make sure that they identified who he was. And if Judas, one of the disciples, was coming up to kiss him, and that wasn't unusual at all. That was a common greeting, as we saw in the end of First Peter, to greet each other with a kiss of love. So it was the same way that we would, if we were going to sell somebody out, we would stick our hand up to shake hands with them, and then when they stick it out, grab them and 
pull them in. So it was, it was that, kind of a, that kind of a deal. Uh, once in a while you'll see this in a, in a boxing match or an MMA match where somebody goes to touch gloves and the other guy clocks them. But uh, so Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Isn't this sort of ironic? And when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? I mean, he just told them, arm yourselves. And they're like, yeah, we're ready. We got, we got a couple swords. So he goes, is this the time? And one of them, we know from the other gospels that John points out it was Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Probably hadn't been practicing much with the sword, intended to cut off his head and nicked his ear. And Jesus said, no, let this happen. And he touched his ear and healed him. And I wonder sometimes how many people, we as disciples of Jesus, are running around lopping people's ears off when we try to convince them that they're wrong and we're right, or we try to make them feel condemned for their sin and whatever. And I, I suspect that Jesus is still following us around and putting ears back on and healing people who we injure. And, uh, but Jesus said to the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. He said, this is appropriate that you would do this in a sneaky way because you guys aren't honest anyway. So they arrested him. And Now the Jews were allowed to arrest people, but they weren't allowed to administer capital punishment. And that's why later they take him to the Romans because they wanted him dead. They just didn't want to beat him, which they were allowed to do because of violations of Jewish law. So they arrested him, and it says they brought him to the high priest's house, and Peter followed at a distance. They put a fire out in the patio, and everybody was sitting out there, and Peter was sitting there, and a little servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him. But he denied Jesus and said, woman, I don't know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, yeah, you're one of them. Peter said, man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. Listen to his accent. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. The other gospels tell us that he cursed at them. But immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And right at that time, Jesus was passing through, and he turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine what that felt like? And probably not a mean look of going, I hope you believe me now, and I told you so, but a look of compassion, a look because the one that he had prayed for and that he knew Satan was going to work over Jesus knew how Peter must feel at that point, humiliated, embarrassed. And so I believe that Jesus looked at him with compassion, having already been beaten some himself and abused, and imagine having the Lord look at you that way. And so Peter then remembered what Jesus had said. When the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly.
Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. They blindfolded him and hit him in the face and said, so prophesy, who hit you? Of course, if you're blindfolded and you get hit, it's, a, it's just a solid hit every time. If you get hit and you even see it coming a little bit, you're able to kind of go with the flow. It's sort of like when a quarterback gets blindsided, doesn't suspect it at all, and then just, boom, they get nailed. Well, being blindfolded and hit is like that. It's, it's really torturous. And they just were blasphemous and just made fun of him. As soon as it was day, the elders and the chief priests led him to the council, and they began to grill him. If you're the Christ, tell us. He said, if I tell you, you'll by no means believe, and if I, if I also ask you, you'll by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. He wouldn't mess with them with their religious questions. He just said, you know, whatever I tell you, you're still going to do what you're going to do. And someday you're going to see me at the right hand of God. You'll answer to me. You'll be sorry. You'll regret this day. And so they said, so you're saying you're the son of God? And so he said to them, you rightly say that I am. You said it. <laughs> now, there are a lot of people today who don't believe that Jesus is God. Um, and, they, and they quibble with every passage of Scripture that teaches that Jesus is God, but they take the phrase the Son of God and they say, well, that's no problem. Uh, you can be a Son of God and not be God. Now, if you're the only begotten Son of God, you have to be composed of that which God is composed of. And so these Jewish leaders knew full well what he was saying. They, if, it, if he was a Son of God in the same sense that anybody who follows God is a Son of God, they wouldn't have been so mad about it. But they realized and he acknowledged that he was God, that he was very God. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So now they were convicting him in the Jewish court of, being, uh, of claiming to be God. So now they wanted to take him to the Roman court and try to find a capital offense against him. And so, you know, they didn't go and tell, tell Pilate that Jesus claimed to be God or the Son of God because he wouldn't care. The, they were used to Caesars all the time would claim divinity. So they tried a little different approach. They led him to Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar that he himself is Christ, a king. So they go to Pilate and they say, this guy claims to be the king and he tells people not to pay taxes. You know, that's not true. They knew it wasn't true. He told people, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But they're just trying to jump up charge, trump up charges. It's funny how people who are so impressed with their own religiosity can so often tell outrageous lies in order for, to accomplish what they perceive as being a higher good. I've heard people who just think they're so deeply spiritual and yet they just lie through their teeth. It's, it's disturbing, but they did that too. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, it is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. He's going, so he's the king of the Jews. He's not claiming to be the emperor of Rome. 
And uh, so, but they were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Now, Pilate was in charge down in the Jerusalem area in the south. But when he heard Galilee, he goes, oh boy, Herod's up there. This is really his problem. And it just so happens, it says, um, he asked him if he was a Galilean. And when he knew that he, he did, he was in Herod's jurisdiction. And it just so happened that Herod was in Jerusalem at the time. So they took him to Herod. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. Remember earlier it said Herod really wanted to see him. Really wanted to mix it up with him, have a little debate. Herod was fascinated by different religious ideas and he thought this will be interesting talking to Jesus. So he got kind of excited, but you know, and it, and it says he heard a lot about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. So to him, Jesus was like a magician at the fair, you know, just yeah, bring him in, let's see what he's got going. Um, he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Jesus wouldn't give Herod what he wanted as a, a good conversation. Chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. The, the soldiers played with him a little bit. They, they've actually found a game board in the area where they, where they did this with Jesus, where Jesus saw Pilate. And, and they would, we found records that they would get a guy and, and dress him up like a king and plant a crown of thorns on his head, and then they would play games with him. They had a board game that was all about um, a kingdom and everything. And, and there in the, in the uh, caves under Jerusalem, there is still a rock whereby... They have that game put on it, and we know how it works. So they were just messing with him, basically, and being cruel. Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity. So Jesus brings people together, even guys like Pilate and Herod. And then Pilate, when he called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, look, you've brought this guy to me as one who misleads the people. You just don't like what he teaches. But having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. Neither did Herod. So I sent him back, I sent him to him, and nothing deserving of death has been found by him. So I'll just, you know, chew him out, have him beaten, and release him. And then they said, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. Whenever it was Passover, they would take a popular prisoner and release him, just pardon him, a, a, a pardon from the government. And so he figured, guys, as many people as like Jesus, they'd be glad to have him do it. But they kept yelling and insisting, and he just kept saying, come on, he didn't do anything. And they kept shouting, crucify him. And they said, give us Barabbas instead. Barabbas was a murderer who everyone hated. And Pilate basically said, look, I'll either, I'll either release Charles Manson to you or Jesus Christ and they said give us Manson let the, the person that's so cruel and so disgusting and so sickening and hateful we'd rather have him go free than for Jesus to go free so he released to them the one they requested verse 25 for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison but he delivered Jesus to their will he said do what you want 
Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Jesus carried the cross himself for a while, but then apparently when the, when, because of the severe beating that he had had and and cross was huge, um, at some point he wasn't able to carry it anymore, and so they drafted Simon, the Cyrenian, just out of the crowd and said, here, you, you help him. And so a great multitude followed him and women who were mourning and lamenting him. And Jesus turned to them and said, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? So he said, you guys are crying for me. My problems are going to be over pretty soon. Uh, You should cry for Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to endure something horrible uh, very shortly. And so there were also two other criminals that were being killed at the same time. And when they came to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Um, We have a pretty good idea of where this is. There's some controversy about it, but it was called the place of a skull or Golgotha. And there's a cliff right outside the the gates of, of Jerusalem that to this day still you can look at this cliff and the way it's worn away, it looks an awful lot like a skull. It's getting damaged by all the fumes from the bus yard that's down below it, but when you go up there, it's really a moving thing. There's an empty tomb, there's a garden, there's a hill that would be higher than everything else looking over Jerusalem, and so um, it's called Gordon's Calvary because a guy named Gordon had ended up finding it there, um, identifying all the elements and everything, but it's a beautiful place to go to just remember that and, and as the, uh, the Baptist minister who's the tour guide there always points out, he says, we don't know if this is the tomb that Jesus was buried in. He said, we know that it has a lot in common with the tomb that Jesus was buried in. It had a place for a stone to be rolled in front of it. It had a bench that was inside of it built into the rocks. And most importantly, like the tomb that Jesus was buried in, this one too is empty. And that's, that's the ultimate thing. But it is a, it, it is a, a uh, I'm not a super sentimental person, but being there is really an amazing experience for sure. If you haven't been there, there's nothing quite like it. And we always celebrate communion there in the garden. It's amazing. But Jesus was nailed to the cross. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. We only have a couple of his, uh, three of his sayings here. There are seven altogether, but one of them was, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. I love that, that he was able to pray for forgiveness of people who, who knew what they were doing, but they didn't really know what they were doing. A lot of times, someone does something hurtful to us, and we don't want them to be forgiven. We want them to suffer. We want them to be punished. But this is an interesting perspective because really if somebody knew what they were doing, would they really do it? 
People sin almost always out of at least partial ignorance. You don't know the damage you are causing. You don't know the consequences that will result. You're not thinking about what Jesus did for you. And so here Jesus, his heart of compassion was just forgive them. They're ignorant. And they divided his garments and cast lots and people stood there watching and even the Jewish rulers were saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ, the chosen of God. Soldiers mocked him, offered him sour wine, said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews, probably just mocking him. And by the way, it wasn't unusual in those days when they would publicly hang someone other people would gather around and make fun of them and make comments and throw things at them and, and hang signs on their thing and they would just let them die that way with people insulting them. It seems really barbaric to us, but we do some things that would be barbaric to them too. So this is just their culture. One of the criminals who was hanging there blasphemed him and said, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and us. But the guy on the other side answering and rebuked him and said, do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, we deserve to die, but we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Somehow this thief on the cross was touched by the way Jesus was handling all of this. By comparing the gospels, we see at one point both of these thieves were making fun of him. But something happened to where one of the guys just looked at it and he goes, I've never seen someone so manly in all my life that could take this without crying, without screaming, without yelling back. And, and he realized he, he, is, he is who he says he was. And so he told the other guy to shut up and he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him assuredly, I guarantee you, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Didn't get baptized, <laughs> got to go to paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. The sixth hour was noon, and the ninth hour was three o'clock in the afternoon. Interestingly, um, the exact time probably when Jesus died, was the exact time that they would kill the Passover lamb at three o'clock that afternoon. The sun was darkened. The veil of the temple was torn in two. One of the Gospels points out that it was torn from top to bottom. No person did it. God did it. This was declaring that, you know, there was nothing keeping us from God now because of what Jesus did. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. They didn't really kill him. He offered himself. Jesus said, nobody takes my life. I give it. And so he went and died when he was ready. And when the centurion, one of the guards, saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And he also said, according to one of the other Gospels, surely this was the Son of God. So the centurion, played by John Wayne in the movie, said, I believe in this guy. I've never seen anything like him. 
And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. When they saw him die, they saw the way he died. They felt horrible. Everybody there was ashamed of themselves and just turned and walked away. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. We know Mary was there, a couple of Marys. We know John was there because Jesus, according to John's gospel, gestured to him and said, behold your mother, woman, behold your son, told, told uh, John to, to take care of his mom. And as far as we know, he did that and she lived with him. At that time, none of Jesus' brothers believed in him. And so Jesus wanted her to be with them. She may have ended up living with James or one of his other brothers after they got saved, after the resurrection. But um, at least there's a church tradition that says Mary actually, there's a house um, in Patmos that they say was Mary's house when she was living with John. So I don't know. But at any rate, they were there watching. And there was a man named Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea, a council member, a good and just man, and he hadn't voted to kill Jesus. He was a Jewish leader that didn't support this. and um, He was waiting for the kingdom of God himself and was wondering whether Jesus was the guy. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they saw the tomb. It was being guarded. The stone was in front of it. But they saw where he was, and then they returned to get spices and fragrant oils ready to come and anoint him. But um, they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So they were planning on coming back at least. He was buried in a rich man's tomb, which was prophesied uh, in Isaiah 53 as well, that his grave would be made with the rich in his death. Um, these tombs were carved out of the rock that makes up much of the area of Jerusalem. A lot of times they were originally dug as um, cisterns for water. But they would dig and carve out a big opening, a big hole in, in this big stone. But you never knew if the stone was going to work until it rained. Because there'd be cracks and the water would leak out. And typically um, they would have to wait. And when it rained and the thing didn't hold water, then they would cut a door in it and turn it into a tomb. And this was probably something like that. But on the first day of the week... Very early in the morning, those ladies and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. It was a custom in those days to put um, herbs and smelly things and spices and everything on the body um, just to appreciate the body and keep it from... It wasn't embalming like they did in Egypt, but it was just to make it more of a pleasant odor than a deteriorating body and so they came and they found the stone was rolled away from the tomb and they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus 
And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. By comparing with the other Gospels, we know the angel rolled the tomb away. You get different perspectives from all four Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels and John, um, but it's not hard to put it all together and get the whole story. I just believe it all. You know, one of them says there was one angel. The other one says there were two. I don't know if you, it's been a while since you've been in a math class, but if you have two, you have to have one in order to have two. So things like that that people will argue about, but they talked to the angels and, and they were afraid and they bowed down to the earth and they said to them, uh, the angels said, why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, you're looking for Jesus. You're not going to find him in a graveyard. The first hint that he was alive, besides the fact that his body was gone, and yet his garment was still laying there in, in the grave. And so he is not here. He is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. The angel said, Jesus kept telling you, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. What part of that didn't you understand? And they're like, oh, rise from the dead? Like, be alive after you're dead? I mean, it just hadn't registered at all. They remembered his words, and they went back and told everything to the 11 um, and to everybody else who was hanging out there. And Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they didn't believe them. In those days, a woman wasn't even allowed to testify in court. Their um, witness was considered completely unreliable. I'm not saying that was right. I'm just saying that's what they did. Um, but God chose to pick women first to testify as witnesses. So somebody who thinks that women don't have a right to speak for the Lord or to minister to people in his name or to testify of what he has done, you have a problem because it was a handful of women who did it first and these great apostles wouldn't believe them. <laughs> It's probably why they told women first, because women would believe them. Men probably wouldn't have believed it if an angel told them. But uh, Peter got up and ran to the tomb. We know John ran with him, and actually John lets us know that John got there first. Luke was probably just telling Peter's side of the story and felt bad for Peter because, you know, he had denied Christ and then he got outrun by John. But he got there and stooped down, and he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. He's like, wow, he's not there. His clothes are. I can't imagine he left without them. Now behold, two of them, two of the disciples, who are unnamed, although there are church history records that name these guys, and they weren't two of the 11. They were just some other people who were following Jesus. They were heading out to Emmaus, it was seven miles north of Jerusalem. And they were talking about everything that had happened, Jesus dying, and, and uh, they conversed and reasoned. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they didn't know him. For some reason, they couldn't recognize him. 
Mary Magdalene also, when she was in the garden, saw Jesus at this time, before he had ascended to the Father. And she, she saw him but thought he was a gardener, which is kind of interesting. Either God just made him have some kind of a shield so that you, know, you wouldn't see him or he did something to their eyes, or perhaps because he had been so beaten up that maybe, I mean, we know that there were still scars, as we will see, so maybe he just wasn't recognizable. But here it seems to say that the Lord didn't let them recognize him. It, it could be. We know that Jesus' resurrection body um, had some unique qualities, like he was able to come into a room without opening the door. And so we think that he would be able to dematerialize somehow and move through things. Um, it's not hard to conceive that originally the human body was designed to do things like that. And because of the fall, because of sin, we lost a lot of our capabilities. Um, and so it may be that we have a body that will be able to do that too. And if so, maybe you'll be able to just make your body take on different appearances, morph into looking like something else. That would be kind of fun. Um, Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is described in a way that's totally different than what he has seen here. Bright white hair, a voice like running water, and all, you know, so uh, really majestic and glowing. In some of these cases, he just looked like a regular guy. So maybe he could change back and forth. I don't know, but at this rate, they didn't recognize him. And uh, so he just said, hey, how you doing? What are you guys talking about? As you walk along and are so sad, you look depressed. And then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. They said, man, we had high hopes that Jesus was the Messiah. But not only did he die, this is the third day. And they believed that the spirit would leave the body after three days. That's why Jesus waited till after three days to raise Lazarus and why his resurrection also came three days later. So they said, now there's just no hope. But they said, you know, yeah, there's some women who arrived at the tomb and told us he was alive. They astonished us. When they didn't find his body, they came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they couldn't find Jesus. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ, the Messiah, to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? He said, you guys don't get it. There's all kinds of stuff in the Old Testament that talked about Messiah coming as a suffering servant. It had to happen. And then Jesus preached his first sermon after rising from the dead, and he opened the scriptures 
And he gave them the most amazing Bible study that anyone has ever heard. I wish they had internet streaming back then, DVDs, video tape, even an audio cassette would have been an eight-track tape. And I would have loved to have heard that message. But beginning at Moses and all the prophets, all the way through the Old Testament, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This lets us know that Jesus appears in the Old Testament a lot more than we sometimes think. So many things in the Old Testament, and you saw it as we, when we studied through the Old Testament, it's amazing how he's on almost every page in some subtle way. And so he called their attention to it and shared this message with them. And as they got close to their town, he said he was going to leave, and they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. It came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. You don't know if God just allowed them to recognize him, if Jesus did that. Um, but it was when he was breaking the bread, which is kind of interesting, because if they had been with him when he served communion, and we don't know how many people were really in the upper room, um, that would have brought back a deja vu to them for sure as he broke the bread. And perhaps some people have suggested that as he broke the bread, there were holes in his hands. And you can imagine everything he's been through. And then this guy is just opening the word to them in an amazing way. And there's those scars. There's those holes. And immediately they're like, you're Jesus. And he, poof, he disappeared. Oh, man. God loves doing that. He likes messing with us. You know, you ever have those times when you feel like, I never felt closer to God. He's just right here with me. This is the most beautiful thing. And then you go like, wait, what happened? <laughs> I'm back. And he kind of likes drifting in and out of our lives sometimes. You know why? Because if he was always making himself just so obvious to us, be no need for faith. If, the, if Cleopas and his buddy had been able to take Jesus and gone, come on with us, man. These guys aren't going to believe it. There would be no faith involved. Um, and same thing with us. We go through those difficult times where it just feels like God's not there. And we find out later that's the crucible in which our character is developed. That's what really does the job for us. And I... I wrote about this uh, on my blog this week, so shame on you if you didn't read my blog. I, I don't, it's okay. But it is, it's, I've seen it happen in my own life, I've seen it happen for others so many times that, that not knowing he's there causes us to have faith and to discover more of his presence in a, in a greater way than even if he's just really obvious. He reveals himself really obviously to us when he knows that we're desperate, when he knows our faith is low. But then he goes ahead and disappears again, or he goes to sleep in the back of the boat so we can find out what we're made of. Can we do this because of what he says? 
not because of what we see, not because of what we feel. So he disappeared, and uh, their eyes were opened, and he vanished. So maybe it was like while he was blessing the bread, as he broke it, they closed their eyes to pray, and then they're like, where did he go? And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? And that is the goal every time we open the word of God, that we would hear personally from God in such a way that our heart burns within us. Um, that doesn't happen for me every time I open the Bible, and I'm sure every time I teach the Bible that doesn't happen to somebody. But um, when it happens, you know it. And ultimately, his word has that effect. When we see Jesus in it, when we hear from him, it, just, it, it, it causes us to just feel like things are right. And um, a burning heart isn't a bad way to describe that, I suppose. Um, and it's while he opened the scriptures to them. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and everybody else gathered together and they said, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told them about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So more witnesses. As it turns out, Jesus was around for a while and, and hundreds of people saw him so that nobody could ever make a case. No one in the first century ever tried to make the argument that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It would be over a thousand years before people would seriously try to postulate that because it's the most evidenced occurrence in all of history that so many people saw him alive, people who knew him well, and he was clearly dead for three days. And so... You know, it's, they never, no one ever said, oh, he didn't really rise from the dead. There were just too many witnesses. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened, him just showing up like that. And suppose they had seen a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? What's the problem? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit or a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. Interesting, Jesus in his resurrection body still had a physical body. When we go to heaven, we're not just going to be ghosts. We're not disembodied spirits. That wouldn't be resurrection. <laughs> resurrection is when your body actually gets restored. And so you go, but wait a minute, what if your body's all deteriorated in the ground? How's that same body going to be resurrected? Well, that body has to be resurrected in order for it to be resurrection. But God doesn't need any, even one molecule of your physical body in order to resurrect that body. All he needs is the DNA. All he needs is the information, the programming, and he can create your body. You know, there isn't one Adam in your body right now that was in your body 10 years ago. About every seven years, your body reproduces almost every part of it. It would have to. When you're little, you're smaller. How'd you get so big? You know, they don't, 
all the parts don't grow, they're being replenished and replaced. And so uh, when we get to heaven, we're going to have a body like this one except perfect. So not l just like this one, but related to this one genetically, but with the damage repaired. So he was there in a physical body. He goes, look, man, I got flesh and bones. Of course, you know the, the story that Thomas was the one who had said, told the disciples. The first time Jesus showed up, he wasn't there. And he said, unless I put my finger in the hole in his hand, I'm not going to believe it. So Jesus said to him, here, here you go. And Thomas bowed down and said, my Lord and my God. But this is kind of cool. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he's, they're like, I can't believe this. He said to them, you got anything to eat? <laughs> he's really making an impression on them that he was human. And it's also a good, a good precedent that when you go to someone's house, ask for something to eat. It's okay. Jesus did it. Just tell me, I'm being like Jesus. Got anything to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and he ate it right in front of them. And then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Again, what an amazing Bible lesson that must have been. And he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you, the Holy Spirit. But tarry, hang around in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So he said, I've got something for you to do, but I have a special endowment of power that you're going to need before you do it. So I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Your job is to go tell the world that it's been fulfilled and to share with them the good news. But he says, wait there in Jerusalem. We, we rented that room for a little while, so still use it. And wait until the promise comes. The promise that was referred to over in Joel chapter 2. That the Holy Spirit would actually come upon them. I'm going to send the promise of the Father upon you. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them. That he was parted from them and gathered up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. So Luke says, basically the rest of the story is history. Remember, he's writing this to Theophilus, a guy who he's trying to lay out the whole story to. Now, next Wednesday, we'll start into part two, which picks up where this leaves off with the disciples in Jerusalem and uh, you know, with the Holy Spirit coming upon them in Acts chapter 2, some other things in Acts chapter 1, but as we're moving through, we're seeing an historian and a, and a great writer and a doctor who understood physical things telling us the story of Jesus and the early church. And so we're halfway through that adventure. We will continue in the book of Acts. 
um, next week. So hope you're there. And um, let's pray. Thanks for your word, Lord, and we thank you for bringing a guy like Acts, like Luke, to the to the table, who was able to record the story in a in a way that described a lot of things, a lot of details that, especially a lot of your teaching that was left out by the other gospel writers. And then as we move into the book of Acts, the exciting story of how the Holy Spirit worked within your people. We look forward to seeing the rest of Luke's story. Thank you for what we've seen tonight. Thank you, we worship you for what you did for us on the cross, for looking at us and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, for looking at us and deciding that it was worth it to suffer because you saw the joy that was set before you, which was to see your seed as Isaiah had prophesied, and that's us. So we thank you for giving us the church, for allowing us to go through this adventure together. Help us to stay focused more and more on what matters and to not be distracted by things that are not worthy of people who are children of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, six minutes late and finished, Luke. That's not bad, so... <laughs>